Thanks to Cry Malt, I'm Matt Kirkegaard and this is Beer is a Conversation. This week, Pete and I fire up the Trans-Pacific phone lines and have a chat with US beer writer John Hall. John is an award-winning journalist and currently the senior editor of Craft Beer and Brewing magazine and also co-host of the award-winning Steal This Beer podcast. John has also served as editor of All About Beer magazine, which unfortunately folded this week. The reason we're catching up with John this week is he has a new book out called Drink Beer, Think Beer, Getting to the Bottom of Every Pint. There are a lot of beer books out that follow the well-worn path of describing what beer is, listing the ingredients, talking about styles, and then giving you a long list of beers that you really must try. That is not John's book. Drink Beer, Think Beer is a thoughtful discussion of just about everything going on in the beer world at the moment, covering all of the things that we talk about here on Radio Brews News, but with ideas a little bit more more formed and a voice far more eloquent, as you'll hear. It's a definite recommendation. It was a great chat that exceeds a cook limit and would have gone much longer had a dentist appointment not intervened. Enjoy the conversation. John Hall, welcome back to Radio Brews News and Beer is a Conversation. It's good to talk with you again. Guys, it's great to talk with you. I'm just sorry it's not in person. Well, we I was going to ask you that because the last time we caught up was in 2014 at uh, Birvana when you were down in New Zealand. Uh, you haven't managed to cross the Pacific again since then? I have not. Uh, it's, it's definitely on my list and... Uh, I keep reading about the the beer scene uh, that that's popped up all throughout Australia, all throughout New Zealand, uh, and and I'm I'm dying to get back. I just have to find uh, find the time in the calendar these days. The the U.S. keeps me really busy. When we last spoke, it was 2014, and I listened back to the interview when we were uh, sort of <laughs> mulling over that there were then 3,000 breweries and maybe a thousand more in planning. And uh, gee, we've seen you know, more than a doubling since then. So I can imagine it would be keeping you very busy. Yeah, it, it really is. And, and you know, the cool thing is, is that the breweries that are opening up these days are really trying hard to differentiate themselves. So, you know, for, for a while it was, hey, we're going to open up and we're going to have an IPA and we're going to have a porter and we're going to have a stout and we're going to, you know, kind of do what, what's been done all along. And a lot of the breweries that are opening up these days are realizing that if they want to make a name for themselves, if they want to carve out a niche, you know, they're going to have to really sort of forge their own path. And so while we do see a lot of hazy IPA and a lot of pastry stouts uh, coming out of a lot of breweries, we're also seeing, you know, folks that are just focusing on lagers um, or just focusing on mixed fermentation in wood uh, or just focusing on mixed fermentation in stainless. Um, and and so I think the diversity in beer um, has really grown as we've seen more and more breweries, which, you know, for, you know, as a, as a writer and a journalist, uh, that, that, that's pretty exciting for me. You you headed off uh, one of the questions I was going to get to a little bit later on, but uh, <laughs> sorry, we're... yeah, no, no, I oh got no. That's that's the, <laughs> uh, the the nature of conversation. Um, but the, the the hazy IPA, yeah. So we're not just seeing seven thousand breweries all knocking out a hazy IPA that uh, and, and then sending them from coast to coast. No, uh, in fact, I, we are seeing a lot of a, a lot of breweries um, do hazy IPAs and and trying to make their stand out a little bit more, but, uh, they're certainly not sending them coast to coast. Uh, these, uh, so many of these are really just built to be consumed locally. And so, uh, if a brewery in Brooklyn or a brewery here in New Jersey or a brewery in in San Diego or wherever is making these, um, they're really not intended to go too much further, uh, than the town line or even the, you know, the postcode for, for, for a lot of these places. And of course they do. Um, but, you know, I think the brewers have sort of ha- have marketed this as, you know, drink it fresh, drink it local. And, and it gives people a reason to, to travel. It uh, gives people a reason to go to their local tap room and to, to try beers. Um, so I, I, I like the, the hazy for that because I think it's bringing new attention back to back to some breweries uh, that might not have had it for a while or, you know, is introducing new breweries and new neighborhoods to, to, to folks as well. It's interesting, you, you, you talk about the local um, idea, and we have seen a growth of the hyper-local and the awareness of local, and 
that's coming at the same time as we're seeing uh, you know, talk about beer freshness and some of the you know, beer quality issues that come around. I, I had an interesting conversation with um, Greg Cook at the start of the year um, that followed on from a conversation that I had with him seven years ago when he said, I'm not sending my beers to Australia. You can't send it down there in a condition that it's a true representation of my beer. Um, If you refrigerate it, it's too expensive and it won't sell and it'll just sit on the shelves and that's not what I want to do. Um, And then six years later, (laughs) suddenly the beers are on the shelf down here. They're very expensive. They're sitting on the shelves. And I had uh, an out-of-body experience having this conversation with the same man who was saying things very, very differently. And as part of that conversation, I posed him the question, you know, is this idea of craft, um, and we'll, we'll get into the whole idea of craft later, but is is this idea of beer made um, under the banner of craft self-limiting in the scale that it can grow to because it isn't something that was designed to be shipped around the world? Yeah. I, I Gosh, I mean, it's such a nebulous question at this point. And what I find really interesting is is that when a brewery hits a certain size, if if they have uh, designs on growth, uh, eventually, you know, you're you're going to have to to make some compromises uh, if you want to continue that growth. And it's been interesting listening to Greg Cook or Jim Cook from Sam Adams and Boston Beer or Sam Caligioni from uh, from Dogfish Head. Uh, a lot of these guys who made. Uh, very declarative statements early on in their brewing careers. Uh, you know, both Jim and Sam said, oh, we're never going to can our beer. You know, and now uh, you can buy Boston Lager and Dogfish had 60 Minutes in cans nationwide. Um, you know, if, if Greg is saying that his beer is never going to travel, well, they're realizing that in San Diego, uh, their home base, uh, and they're a national brand, but in San Diego, their home base, uh, you know, there's 200 breweries uh, or so in that general area. Uh, there's not any new bars or uh, shelves, and so they're going to need to find new markets. And, you know, what, what's interesting to me, you know, is you mentioned that they're very expensive and they're sitting on shelves uh, down by you. I'm finding that with Stone Beers here as well in New Jersey. So I'm on the other side of the U.S. Uh, from where Stone is. And, you know, I see Stone IPA and I have fond memories of that beer and I like that beer and uh, I like the people who make that beer. But there's also great West Coast IPAs that are made right down the street from me. And I know that that's fresh and I know those people and I like those people and I want to drink that beer. You know, and so I think that the larger some of these breweries get, uh, they really have to figure out what their next moves are. Um, and what, what, what I might find interesting, and I'll, I'll wrap it up after this, but what I, what I find interesting is, you know, uh, BrewDog, for example, uh, the UK brewer made a huge push into the US a bunch of years ago, and they were sending Punk IPA over here. And, you know, we had it when it first came out, it was something new, it was something different. Uh, and then it just started sitting on shelves because it was a foreign beer. It was sitting on shelves. You know, it, it was kind of well past its prime uh, in a lot of ways. They couldn't meet the supply chain. Uh, and so what does BrewDog do? They opened up a brewery here in the U.S. to sort of nip that supply chain in the bud. So I think in the same way that we've seen Brooklyn beers uh, out of New York uh, open up uh, some some partner breweries overseas, we might start seeing some U.S. breweries where, you know, do the, do the same thing as well. So, um Maybe there'll be a you know Stone Melbourne pretty soon. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> well, we're about to see a brew dog set up uh, just up the road from where I live in Brisbane. You never know. But you did raise that question of um, compromise because, funnily enough, that was what prompted the the, the chat with Greg this year because he'd, uh, you know, in, in his inimitable style, posted uh, talking about insidious creep, um, referring to compromises that breweries make that led to the uh, again. I had to I'd pick up what he put down and. Uh, you know, ask whether insidious creep um, and that f- term for gradual compromise of values extends to uh, what we've seen him done. Do, do you think, and you, you unprompted said that, uh, you know, breweries reach a size and they have to make compromise. Um, is, is, is that compromise the thing that starts taking craft beer away from being what it once promised to be? I hope not, but I think it's possible. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, any company, you know, at some point, uh, you know, it's as they start to grow, uh, it becomes economics uh, in a lot of ways. And, you know, when you're small, 
you know, you, you might spend a couple more bucks on uh, specialty malt, for example, because, you know, you know that it's it's the best that you can get and uh, you really want to stand out. Uh, and if you're buying 50 pounds at a time, uh, that's one thing. Uh, but then if you, you know, now suddenly need to buy 20,000 pounds uh, and there's another malt that's just almost as good, uh, that's going to be, you know, 10% or 20% less. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think we start to see that, and we see that with clothing, and we see that with with other consumer goods as well, uh, mass-produced uh, uh, consumer goods. And so um, I, I hope that's not the case because, you know, the, the craft beer movement, or here in the U.S., I guess we're calling it independent, uh, but whatever you want to call it, um, you know, it was built on the idea of quality, uh, the idea of uh, you know, forging a path, uh, staying true to tradition, um, you know, giving people the best experience possible. Um, and I think a lot of the small breweries do that. And I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, the small breweries are doing so well these days uh, in the way that some of the larger players now in the U.S., um, you know, were founded on. And, and you know, I think still do the best they can. Uh, and I, you hope they, they do the best they can. But, you know, when you have a lot of employees to pay and you have rent to pay and overhead and, you know, all sorts of different things. You know, you have to you have to figure out the best way to make the most money, and sometimes that means uh, doing something that was unimaginable to you when when you were younger. And <laughs> and I think that's part of growth and maturity as well, right? I mean, I, I'm sure that if if I look back in some of my notes uh, or some of my thoughts, or you know, my 38 year old self was able to go back and meet my 18 year old self. Uh, my 18 year old self would be calling me a sellout for various things. You know? <laughs> I, I don't know what, but, you know, but, but our perspective changes and, and our, you know, our ideals change, you know, over time and life experiences, uh, you know, continue us on this journey. I mean, I, I'm not trying to be too philosophical here, but, um, I do feel bad sometimes when some of these guys, uh, make these declarative statements, uh, at a younger point and then suddenly are forced to eat crow, um, because I think it happens to all of us. It's just these guys are in the public arena, and we're the ones with the notebook, pens, and and long memories. Well, and I guess that was my point, and it's where, um, for me, Greg and Stone are a really great touch point for for this discussion. Because Greg's still making those declarative statements and calling other people out for compromise and uh, continuing that brand and not softening that brand um, around their lack of compromise when. Just by na- by definition, by nature, we are seeing uh, some of that compromise uh, start to come in. Yeah, and here's the thing, and and I've known Greg for for a lot of years, and I always enjoyed talking with him. But uh, uh, you know, that's where he lives, and and making those declarative statements, and <laughs> you know, pointing fo- pointing you know fingers at uh, at other folks, and you know, sometimes it's you know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain kind of thing. So <laughs> he's a good showman. John, I was lucky enough to um, spend a couple of weeks in the States uh, back in July. And uh, there's an interesting comment you made there about how they're, you know, we're getting all these extra breweries, but not the, uh, you know, there aren't any extra shelves, there aren't any extra taps. Is that because uh, I just found um, particularly some of the the little hidden gems that, that we found that we were sort of put onto by locals rather than by, you know, the, the broader beer community were the, were the times that we we've, we will fondly remember. And it's not so much because we could get beers there that we couldn't get anywhere else, but little places like uh, in Brooklyn, we found the Owl Farm and it was, it was yeah. just chatting to the locals and it was chatting to the, to the, to the bar staff and learning about what it is that made that neighbourhood tick that we, you know, that was different to what was, you know, in Melbourne or in Brisbane or, or in Berlin. Um, is that perhaps where the opportunity arises is, you know, is, is the room for more, you know, small, because the owl farm, as an example, tiny footprint. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a massive, you know, beer barn. Um, presumably, there could be four more others like that, and you know, we 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 could have walked, you know, to to three others in the night. As it turned out, it was so good we stayed there. But that's another story. Well, and I think that that's the interesting story as well, right? I, I, it's it, it's so much about atmosphere. Um, there's so much good beer that's being made these days. I mean, there's also some pretty miserable beer that's being made, but you know, yeah. you hope for the most part when you, when you put your money across the bar, uh, that you're getting a good pint in return. And, and I found that, you know, 10 years ago, 
uh, maybe as you know, a craft was really ramping up and, and, and people were starting to get excited and, you know, uh, uh, the internet was making the world a smaller place and, uh, but also making us, you know, super competitive with untapped check-ins and all this other stuff that there is this rush to run around to as many breweries as possible or to try as many beers in a night as possible, or, you know, just, just to sort of, you know, puff your ego, your beer ego up a little bit and, uh, you know, damage your liver a little bit. And, and, and these days, you know, I think it. I, I think we're coming back the other way, where people are. You can go to a place like Owl Farm and you know sit and have multiple rounds of the same beer uh, in an atmosphere with people who share similar thoughts as you. Um, and and I think that that happens with breweries as well these days. Some of the smaller tap rooms um, as well. And and I really love that nature um, of, of beer these days. Is that there's a lot of thought that are going into new places and a lot of thought that because these people are beer fans too and you know if they create a space that speaks to your sensibilities as you're traveling or if you live around the corner uh you're gonna go there as opposed to in the past we just had to go down to the local tavern that maybe would have a good craft hat maybe it wouldn't um but it was our only option back then or going to the local beer store that, you know, maybe had an import shelf or maybe had a couple of new beers or, but the rest of it was, you know, the macro stuff. Um, you know, these days, the places that are opening these days are opening with craft in mind. And that didn't happen in the past. And it's, it's fun to, to really sort of stop and appreciate where we are. Um, cause it is easy to sort of get swept up in all of the hype of the day to day, but, uh, we're living in an age of just awesome choice and, you know, a place for everybody. Uh, which I think is which, which which is great, and it doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be a you know big warehouse. It can just be a small corner bar. Yeah, which probably segues really nicely into uh, getting around to chatting about the new book. And Matt and I off air before we called you were were just sort of musing over. It's great that there's a book about beer that's not um, here's you know 100 beers you must try before you die, or <laughs> here's 50 beers that are hot. So hot right now, by the time you actually get around to buying the book, <laughs> most of them, the barrel will be tapped or they don't make it anymore or the, or the brewery's gone out of business. And it's more well, about it, that ethereal nature of beer. Well, thank you. In, in fairness, I will say that Adrian Tierney Jones, the, uh, the Brit who, who just did the revised version of 1001 Beers to Drink Before You Die, is an excellent guy. And that's a great book, and everybody should go buy that as well. But, uh, yeah, the new book, uh, Think Beer, Drink Beer, Getting to the Bottom of Every Pint, uh, was just released. And um, thanks for that summary, because, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm still trying to figure out how to explain it to people. And it's basically, you know, I say this is not a recipe book. This is not a flavor book. Um, you know, this is considering the world of beer outside of the glass of beer. You know, sort of a kaleidoscopic look at uh all things beer. And so, uh, yeah, thanks for, you know, thanks for that tee up on there. That's a very hard thing to do, John. And it, 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 it's something that, um, yeah, it we, we both appreciated about, uh, about the book because it, it's something that Pete and I basically spend our lives musing about those broader elements of beer and try and make sense of it all. And, uh, you, you, you've captured so many of the big issues in beer, but in a, in a very engaging way. Well, thanks. You know, and, and so much of the book came from these great conversations uh, that I've been fortunate to have as a journalist covering this industry for, you know, gosh, the last 15 years or so, uh, you know, including a conversation with you guys uh, four years ago when we were in New Zealand, uh, made it into the book. You know, it's when we're sitting around and people ask me all the time, you know, it's like, you know, so what's your job? You're basically just sitting drinking beer. And it's like, well, yeah, you know, but I, then I also have to write words. And, you know, as I'm drinking beer, I'm usually talking about, you know, things that are not necessarily uh, flavors, you know, like we might say like, oh, wow, you know, this uh, this Rausch beer has a you know really nice campfire smokiness to it. But then we don't spend the next 45 minutes talking about smoke. You know, we'll talk about art or philosophy or life or, you know, everything else that that's sort of happening around us. Um, and and. So many of these conversations I've been fortunate to have, uh, I tried to distill down um, in the book. And uh, the cool thing is, is that these conversations are happening all the time, you know, pretty much everywhere. You know, uh, as a friend pointed out to me, and I put this in the front of the book, you know, beer is an addendum to life. You know, it shouldn't be our life. It should just be something that we enjoy while life is happening, you know, to us. Yeah, and, and I mean, that, that's very much the, the approach that Pete and I take. But And I, I was thrilled and uh, surprised and uh, delighted that you did mention 
the, the, he's the been telling that, everyone, John. Don't don't hide that's from that. He's not been, true. Tr- he's, there's a banner at the front of his house advertising <laughs> a particular chapter. I've got to mention in John Hall's book. That's not quite true. But the one thing I want to say is, so the question I, I threw at you when we did catch up in uh, New Zealand was if beer was invented or created for the first time today, what would it look like? Would it look like what we come to know? Now, um, I, I, I was surprised that that had grabbed you um, to the point that you'd thrown it round to you know some great um, thinkers on beard such as uh, Stan Hieronymus and, and people like that. But uh, when it made it into the book, I, I felt a little bit verbal somewhat because you attributed to me that I thought it would look like Corona, um, a, a bland, innocuous lager. And I thought, gee, is that really what I said? And I, I think you've given me the complete opposite side of, of the discussion. I said that it wouldn't uh, be that. Oh, did I did I get it wrong in the book? Uh, well, I, I I think so. I'm just trying to. I found the email this morning where I first posed the question, and I said no one would ever create Corona because that wouldn't excite anybody. Corona just doesn't. You know, it would be something huge and exciting and engaging. Um, and Corona is almost the end result of the decline of that process. Um, but there, there was a, a very long conversation that we had that will refer people back. But uh, the none of it matters because it's it, as always it's the conversation around these things not I, I don't think we ever end on a on, on a final answer well i uh if 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 i mangled it uh i will get it right in the uh in the reprints i promise uh, i will I'll, I'll i'll go back and recheck my notes as well oh great um, now he's gonna get know, another mention no <laughs> this is how you're gonna be it, unbearable yeah. thanks john uh, <laughs> well, you know, I, but the the cool thing about this is, is that you know, the, there's these small, seemingly innocuous um, uh, questions, comments that get thrown out there that can really uh, get the mind reeling uh, and get us thinking about things in in different ways. And uh, you know, it was so much fun to ask people, you know, your question, Matt, of you know, if if beer was invented today, what would it look like? Um, and it was so wildly different uh, from person to person to person because you know the only limit is our own imagination um, or our own hopes um, or even our own pessimism. Uh, as well. And uh, I think, you know, questions that surround beer uh, can be a mirror into the soul uh, for a lot of folks. You know, it's, uh, you know, what you're drinking at the time or, uh, you know, where you are in life or, you know, what you wish um, uh, for in the future. Uh, You know, so many of these cool questions that we ask each other when we're drinking beer, I think, you know, reveal so much about human nature as well. Um, And it's cool that beer can bring that out. It, it, look, that's beautifully put because the the reason that I posed that in the first place because I'd always thought that beer is very much a reflection of the society that's consuming it. And if you look at all of the sort of points at which beer has um, been relevant at historical markers, you see certain styles or certain beers that sometimes survive, sometimes don't. Um, and that was why I was thinking, well, look, you know, just if we didn't have this historical connection with the past where beer had evolved and it was suddenly uh, thrust upon us, what would it look like? And uh, um, yeah, look, it was a great conversation. I was thrilled that it was uh, taken up. But where you say that beer um, is looks inside our soul, one of the uh, topics that you touch on in the book uh, looks at the shadows in beer. Do you want to tell us a little bit about um, your, your musings there? This is the tough thing. These are the, the difficult conversations to have. Um, but they're the necessary conversations to have. Um, you know, we talk about beer as a fun time beverage and it, and it certainly is, uh, it's an excuse to, you know, beer is around when we're celebrating, uh, you know, everyday life or weddings or, you know, uh, birthdays or, 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 or whatnot. Um, and it's usually associated, especially if you look at television advertisements or print advertisements, uh, you know, joy as it were. But if you look carefully at the bottom of a lot of these ads, you'll often see uh, the the words or something to the effect of please enjoy responsibly. And that's a reminder that there are shadows that lurk around beer these days, be it, you know, people who struggle with alcoholism um, or, you know, people who struggle, um, you know, with uh, with with poor moderation. You know, if you if you drink too much and then you don't exercise or you don't uh, um uh, eat well, you know, you can, you can have some serious health problems, uh, that, that can be associated with it. Um, you know, and then there's 
things that are happening and, and boy, you know, there's a, a, a brewery down by you guys not too long ago. Um, you know, that, that sort of play off of misogynistic values or, you know, homophobic or xenophobic, uh, you know, uh, so many different, um, uh, ways that, uh, you know, beers in the past and brews in the past have marginalized women or minorities, um, saying that it's a joke. And in some cases, maybe, maybe it is, um, you know, but it's not funny. Um, you know, it, 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 beer doesn't know gender, beer doesn't know sex, beer doesn't know religion. Um, and you know, the, the brewers and the, the folks who are marketing some of these things, um, are, are smart to remember that, uh, you know, as it were. Um, and so, you know, there, there's a lot of things that happen in beer these days um, that can make people feel bad, uh, that can harm people. Um, and as much as we want to celebrate the makers and celebrate the recipes and celebrate with each other by clinking some bottles together, um, we need to be mindful that, that these things are lurking. And we need to be mindful, um, you know, to, to look out for our fellow drinkers and our fellow friends and our fellow man, um, you know, to, to step up and say, hey, you know, are you okay? Or, Hey, this is not okay. Um, and, and I get into that in the book and, you know, I, I recount some of the experiences that I've had in the past, uh, you know, where people have, uh, you know, in turn, you know, turned around and said some nasty things about me or my family or, you know, something in between. And, you know, it just sort of shows that, um, uh, you know, I think as, even as society, we still have a long way to go towards, uh, uh, peace and brotherhood for all. And, and that's one of the most disappointing things about, you, you mentioned the, the, the one recently and, Beer has always been, as one of its best attributes, something that brings people together to share a beer and, you know, solve the world's problems over. Um, and yet it's it, there have been some issues in beer that have become very, very divisive. And w w with the um, issue, the naming issue that you talked about, that was one of the things. And, and that's where your comment about it looks into our soul um, was quite relevant because it did bring up a lot of ugliness, quite apart from the name itself, the discussion around it evolved into a lot of ugliness and that's a really sad thing yeah it, it is and fortunately it's not happening as much as it did you know years ago um but at the same time because of the internet uh these are not local issues anymore um you know i had never heard of that brewery down by you guys uh you know and suddenly it's in my news feed on facebook and twitter and everything else uh because you know people around the world are screaming about it and, and, and that's sort of interesting as well, is that it can be both good and bad. You know, it can drive home the point to the people who did this in the first place that, you know, this isn't okay. And it isn't just, you know, some people down the street from you who are complaining, but, you know, hey, it's the entire world that's complaining. Um, you know, and, and I think that that's sort of good, but it's still bad that it, you know, that it's happening, that um, people aren't aware enough uh, or understanding that their actions and their words have consequences um, and can hurt. So uh, I think we all just need to be mindful of that going forward. Another one of the issues that you bring up in in the book, and there's a lengthy reflection on the word craft, which uh, you know I, I think you said has pretty much gone the way of microbrew. And I think it was around 2014 when we were chatting that it was off mic because uh, it wasn't as part <laughs> of the podcast, but we were basically saying that, you know, we'd all stopped using the word craft to mark out a certain part of beer, um, a certain element of the beer market. Um, and, and then you, that discussion morphs into independence. Tell us a little bit about you know, where, where you're at around that discussion at the moment. Independence is the word that smaller breweries that have identified as craft for a long time um, have, have sort of taken on. And it really comes down to ownership for a lot of folks. You know, we've seen... Uh, Anheuser-Busch InBev buy a lot of breweries here in the U.S. I mean, when I say a lot, it's like a dozen and a half maybe. Um, you know, but around the world they've bought some others. Uh, but they also have the weight to put these once small breweries uh, into pretty much every account that they have, uh, if not nationally, uh, you know, globally. Uh, you know, Goose Island is a, is a great example of that, of a once small-ish uh, Chicago-based brewery. That's no. That's now owned by Anheuser Busch and Bev. That you can drink pretty much around the world uh, these days. And you know, so the so the smaller breweries had to sort of stand up 
and say, well, hey, you know, there's people who are going to think that these uh, these guys are independent uh, or these guys are craft or small. So we need to, to tell people that they're not. And so uh, our Brewers Association here, uh, the, the, the trade group that represents small breweries, uh, launched a logo uh, about a year and a half ago, uh, the Independent Seal, and it's an upside down turn bottle. Um, which is, you know, kind of a silly-looking logo. I've been, I've been calling it the National Catch-Up Association because, uh, you know, you got to turn the bottle upside down. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but the the word independence, and so you know, so if you're if you meet the Brewers Association's criteria for being a small brewer, you can put this on all of your packaging or on the front door of your brewery or whatever. Um, and, and I think that that's cool on some level, um, but it doesn't answer a lot of the important questions um you know and 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 the most the most important one to me is using that seal or calling yourself independent does not necessarily mean that it's quality beer that it's good beer that it's beer that i want to drink and you actually go a little bit further in the book you say we need to ask how being independent benefits the employees um the beer the community and all those supporting the movement so there's a lot more you know the 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 independent logo yeah. doesn't necessarily um, provide a uh, you know a guarantee of no. And so you know th- this is a story that didn't make it into the book, but um, uh, I was traveling earlier this year and I was in uh, in, in Washington State, and uh, I had met a brewer earlier in the week or a brewery owner earlier in the week, uh, and they had invited me to stop by if I was ever going to be in the area. And so uh, it actually turned out that my travel plans changed and that I was in this the general area of this brewery. And, uh, and I walked in unannounced, you know, as I usually do at these places and the owner was there and, you know, was, was, was very gracious, gave me a tour of, uh, of the small little brewery. Uh, and I had just a, a few minutes before, before I had to get to the airport. And so I said, uh, Hey, I have one, I have time for one beer. Um, you know, what's your flagship? And the owner said, Oh, we make an alt. And it's like, wow, that's really cool that a brewery, this small brewery that their flagship is an alt beer. You don't hear that all too often. I was expecting, you know, hazy IPA. And so uh, I said, you know, I, I'll have a pint of that. And I ordered it, you know, without tasting it first. And as the, the pour in it, uh, I, I look up and behind the bar, they have all of their merchandise for sale. Uh, t-shirts and hats and glasses and all sorts of things with their logo on it. And on the t-shirts, I noticed that they had this upside down independent bottle uh, right on the sleeve. And I said to the brewery owner, like, that's really kind of cool. I haven't seen that on any clothing uh, just yet. And the, the owner says to me, well, we believe in wearing our independence, you know, on our sleeve for all to see. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, that's actually pretty cool. And as I'm thinking this, the owner puts a pint of diacetyl down in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. And, and the beer is undrinkable. And I mean, it was just, it was so buttery. And I mentioned this in the book. I have a really high threshold for diacetyl. There's some people who can smell it and taste it across the room. Um, I, I, I basically need to be drinking 100% of the stuff in a glass for me to, for my, you know, sensory perceptors to, to kind of pick up on it. And so, you know, it, it was, it was teeming with diacetyl. And, you know, the, the owner asked me the question, you know, what do you think of the beer? And I had to give the honest answer of, you know, you guys do diacetyl rests or have you noticed this flavor or have you, you know, and, and, you know, it got heated really quickly, you know, and, and, and I understand that because, you know, they, they, they want to put their best foot forward. They want to be, you know, loved and, um, you know, and, and here's, you know, this guy walking in from out of state, you know, uh, insulting their beer. It's like saying your children look funny. Yeah, I, you know, in, in some ways. And, and you know, as a, as a journalist and, you know, as somebody who's, who's studied this for a while, like, I, I don't like tearing people down. Um, I don't like, you know, making people feel bad. But, you know, if I'm, if I'm asked a direct question and I'm getting diacetyl, I'm going to tell you I'm getting diacetyl. Um, but it, 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 what's interesting is that if somebody walks in for the first time to this small brewery and they have a bad pint of beer. They have something that's infected that tastes moldy or musty uh, when it shouldn't or tastes buttery when it shouldn't um, or isn't carbonated properly when it should be uh, or any number of flaws that can exist in beer. Um, and they see this as independent or craft or whatever it is uh, and they have a bad experience. They might go back to drinking Budweiser, or they're going to know that Goose Island, you know, is a fine beer that you know never lets them down, you know, or 
any number of things. And so independence doesn't necessarily mean good beer. And I think we all have to be remindful, uh, remembering that, you know, going forward. And it also means that if you're going to carry that logo as a brewer, I think that you have a responsibility then if you notice that the brewery down the street from you or across town from you is serving bad pints that you have to speak up, you know, independence doesn't necessarily mean, Hey, I'm like, we're all in the same club. It means, Hey, I'm standing up on my own because I believe in what's right. Uh, and, and so the word, you know, I, I don't know if that's the right word for, for beer these days, but it's certainly the one that's, that's been adopted and, you know, give it another couple of years, we'll be on to something else. It's a hard thing to do calling out your, your fellow brewer though. Um, and you know, particularly when a lot of people are hiding the whole thing about quality by talking about, we don't believe in, uh, you know, uh, slavishly adhering to consistency because ingredients change throughout the year as if that explains, uh, a badly made beer. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, 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 what's amazing is that you know there, there's a thousand and one excuses uh, that I've heard, you know, over time. Um, but it's the brewers who acknowledge a flaw, recognize it, know that you know they had a hand in it. If they did, in fact, have a hand in it, um, and then work to make it better. Those are the ones who have succeeded over time and the ones who will continue to succeed. You know, the ones who hope that the public doesn't notice or, you know, quite honestly, don't know how the flaw got there in the first place, if it is, in fact, you know, their fault. Uh, they're the ones who, you know, as we're hitting 7,000 breweries here in the U.S., uh, those are the ones who will go by the wayside first. You know, uh, you have to have the technical knowledge, you know, and you also have to have, you know, the humility uh, to, to understand when you screw up, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm sitting here right now, um, you know, feeling that right now, uh, knowing that I, I messed up your quote in the book. Uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, if, 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 if I got something wrong, you know, I, and you got to stand up and you got to correct it, you know, it's, it's what we do. Um, you know, and it's how you get better and it's how you succeed and, you know, gosh, you know, nobody wants to, to have this happen, but, um, it does, and we learn from it, and we try to we try to get better. We apologize, and then we we try to get better. So, um, you know, I hope brewers take that into account uh, because it is getting harder uh, for them to stand out, and it is getting harder for them to make money and make a living with so many breweries operating, and you know, the tap space and the the shelf space that we were talking about earlier not getting, uh, you know, too much bigger. Um, and simply putting a logo on your beer. Um, it's not going to help you sell more beer. You know, it'll draw a certain consumer base towards you, but if the beer's not good, it's not going to help you out. John, having said that, we've moved on since 2014. Um, I've judged uh, a lot of beers, and the one thing I notice is that the those you know the the seriously faulted beers uh, are becoming fewer and fewer. So we're overall the quality, I think. Is improving. Having said that, in four years' time, we catch up and we chat again. What is the what are the biggest challenges, and and where do you see us in in another four years? Oh man, you know, if I knew that, I'd be running a consulting business. That'd be making me a lot of money. Um, <laughs> I I hope that we continue to see more experimentation. Um, at the Craft Brewers Conference, you know, this uh, or the World Beer Cup that they had this year uh, in Nashville, Tennessee, um, Tommy Arthur from Lost Abbey was, was given like the defense of the industry award. And, and he challenged brewers to innovate, uh, to not just follow trends, but to create them. Uh, and I'd love to see people take that to heart. You know, we have some early adopters, you know, the people that we credit here in the U S uh, with making the hazy IPA, you know, we point to John Kimmich uh, and Greg Noonan back at the Vermont pub and brewery and the alchemist uh, up in Vermont. You know, it's creating this style that has has taken over the world, as it were. Um, you know, slowly over time. You know, and now everybody makes a hazy IPA, but everybody is making a hazy IPA for the most part, uh, exactly like how their neighbor is. Uh, and they, you know, the difference is the the clever names or uh, the wacky adjuncts that the, that they're throwing into it. Um, and then there's people who come by, like Kim Sturdivant from Social Kitchen and Brewery, who takes uh, a, an enzyme that's been used in Imperial Stouts forever uh, and adds it to an IPA. Uh, and suddenly now we have Brute IPA. And now everybody is chasing Brute IPA and trying to, to figure that out as well. I, I'd love to see you know brewers 
you know, like Tommy said, you know, not just chase fads or trends, um, but to try to create something new, try to create something that is wholly their own. Uh, you know, there's still a lot of white space uh, in, in beer these days. You know, there's uh, miles of runway, um, you know, for, for brewers to explore. Uh, we don't just need to keep hanging out in the same patch of pavement uh, all the time. And so, um, you know, and for drinkers as well, uh, uh, what I'd love to see over the, the you know, the next four years uh, is for them to get diverse. You know, the, the, the people who are just drinking hazy IPAs uh, or the people who, you know, are from a certain generation that, you know, hate or think they hate ha hazy IPAs, um, you know, try something different now and again. You know, if all you're drinking is, uh, you know, turbid, juicy, uh, citra mosaic forward uh, pale ales, um, go drink a Saison. Go drink a proper bitter. You know, like go back and drink the beers that you started off your career with, you know, like, like let's diversify it up a little bit. Um, I think it just will make us appreciate drinking that much more. Did I, did I successfully avoid your question there? No, not at all. Not at all. What I think, <laughs> it's just occurred to me that what, what we probably have avoided is, and, and you, you made me think of it then, I was going back through, ages ago, going back through old um, copies of All About Beer and because I wanted to do some research on lager. And lager was was the dirty word. Lager was, you know, I'm, I'm too cool to drink lager. Um, and I remember reading a, a story about the revival of lager and particularly the, I think it was the Widmer Brothers Brewery from memory, um, how they had really kind of, you know, challenged the notion that lager needs to be, you know, for drinking, not for thinking, and it just needs to be bland and, and inoffensive. And we're actually taking it to new places. And, and like I say, people then jump on that. Um, is that perhaps where we, you know, these things go in cycles. You mentioned Saison. It's pretty hard now in Australia to, to get a, a Saison or a particularly a wheat beer. More, more breweries each week seem to be dropping them from their roster rather than, you know, innovating. Yeah, I mean, you gotta you gotta make what's going to sell. Um, but I do think that if you if a brewery offers it and tries to sell it the right way, or can find a, a, a niche audience, um, you can go. You know, you can do really well. You know, I look at Sierra Nevada. Uh, they opened up their their brewery in North Carolina a couple years ago, and Sierra Nevada, obviously known for its pale ale and its you know hoppy forward beers, uh, at this brewery in Mills River, North Carolina, uh, the place that they call Malt Disney World. I mean, it is one of the <laughs> most gorgeous breweries I've ever I've ever visited in my life. Um, uh, their second best-selling beer on draft uh, is their Kellerweiss, you know, their American wheat beer, their sort of Hef uh, Hefeweizen-esque uh, homage to, uh, to a German classic. Um, and it's the second best-selling beer at the brewery, uh, which is amazing to me. And they don't do much to, to market it. They don't do much to sell it. Um, but it's a great beer and people respond to it. So I think that if you have, you know, approachable beers and you have the great education behind it, it'll go from there. You know, and the interesting thing, you know, you mentioned lager, um, and it was a dirty word, especially by the craft uh, brewers, the micro brewers, the independent brewers, whatever, uh, you know, for, for so long. Um, but these days, everybody's jumping into that space. And it's smart, because here in the US, craft, the craft segment uh, is 13% of the overall beer drinking marketplace. So there's 87% of beer drinkers that know Budweiser, Miller, Coors, uh, and the words lager and Pilsner, because that's what they drink. And so if craft wants to grow, it's not going to be by reaching that 87% of people through Citra Mosaic Juicy IPA. It's going to be, hey, we have a local Pilsner that's made down the street from you. Give it a try. We think it's as good as Budweiser, you know, or we think it's as good as X. Uh, yeah, and yep. people will respond to that. And, you know, maybe it won't be as good as Budweiser. It'll be different. It'll be local. It'll be smaller. Um, but you can appeal to people that way as well. You can play up the local angle. You can play up, you know, support your neighbor um, while giving them beers that taste good and that they like. John, I'm very conscious of the time um, and, and that it's getting late uh, and, and, and you've got a child to put to bed, no doubt, a, a, a little girl. Um, but Pete just mentioned he'd been going back through All About Beer magazines. That was the only other thing I wanted to really uh, highlight was it folded this week, which uh, very, very sad, but also a, a sign of the times to some extent. Yes and no. Um, so All About Beer magazine, and, and I'll preface this by saying I was the editor there. Uh, from 2013 until March of 2017. So I've been gone uh, for, for more than a year now um, uh, from oh, Matt, the magazine. Matt, Matt wasn't blaming you. <laughs> no, 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 that's, that, no, that's fine. Um, 
Trust but me, all you'll, you'll know. Started, uh, yeah. <laughs> well played. Uh, I feel like I'm going to have to go and get you the correction banner for your front door. Um, the uh, So All About was founded in 1979, uh, was the country's oldest um, uh, beer magazine. Uh, Michael Jackson called it home for, for a lot of years. We had uh, Fred Eckhart, our great beer writer uh, uh, in the U.S. as well. You know, a lot of folks who started writing about beer uh, and who have made a career writing about beer got their start at All About. Uh, getting your byline in that magazine was was certainly a, uh, a feather in a lot of people's caps. Um, you know, and in 2014, the magazine uh, was sold. Uh, longtime owners, uh, Daniel Bradford and, and, and Julie Johnson, uh, sold it to, uh, to a guy named Chris Rice uh, in 2014. Uh, and you know, it, it, it really wasn't so much a sign of the times, uh, as it was poor ownership. Um, you know, there's, uh, uh, you know, financial issues, uh, that plagued the magazine, um, you know, that, uh, that probably could have been avoided. Um, you know, I can only speak to what was happening when I was there, uh, but there are certainly things that could have been corrected, um, uh, that, that seem, you know, weren't corrected, uh, after I left and after, uh, most of the other staff that I worked with, uh, left over the last, uh, uh year and a half or so. Um, and so it, it, it's terribly sad. Um, uh, the remaining staff got laid off, uh, last week, folks who were left, uh, it had stopped, uh, printing. Uh, earlier this year, uh, it had stopped updating its website uh, uh, over the last couple of months. And uh, yeah, it's. Um, I think niche publications can survive and thrive. Uh, and I think print, uh, when it comes to niche, uh, can also do well uh, at the same token. You know, people still like tactile in their hands. Uh, people like seeing the pictures, people like seeing layouts, people like, you know, seeing what brewers look like, you know, and you can get all of that on your phone. But I think for niche publications, uh, print uh, still has a place, you know, uh, in this day and age that probably won't be forever. But in this day and age, it can. Um, but you need the right ownership, you know, and the, uh, you know, the, the right folks to, to keep the, the story uh, or keep the, the business afloat. Uh, and in the case of All About Beer, this isn't what it deserved. Uh, it, it deserved better than, than this, but, um, you know, sometimes, uh, the wrong people get the hold of it. And that's, uh, that's the sad obituary of all about. So, so what was, what was the new owner's background before he bought it, uh, from, uh, Julie, uh, Julie and Daniel. Yeah. Uh, you know, he calls himself a serial entrepreneur. So, you know, he's had a bunch of jobs in the past. Uh, he founded a brewery, uh, maybe 20 years or so ago, uh, had worked as a consultant in some other industries, uh, didn't really have a publishing background. Um, and, uh, yeah, so just, uh, he calls, he calls himself a serial entrepreneur, or at least that's how he described himself to me, uh, uh over the years. Is it not selling enough units or is it, um, the advertising revenue? Cause that, that seems to me to be the one that's the, I guess the, you know, the, the prickle in under the saddle. It's, there are so many different options now for a, a brewer to market their beer or to, you know, to advertise a new beer. Um, I guess we have a similar sort of situation with our um, beer and brewer magazine in Australia, which is quarterly. So you need, they need to be really kind of on top of, okay, this is going to come out, but we've got to write it now. And do you, when it comes out, we've got to make sure that we're not advertising a beer that's, you know, already one and done or um, th that sort of thing. And really, it's driven by advertisers. Is it? Do you think with all about it was the not enough money coming in for advertising revenue, or just not enough units being sold, or a combination of the two? Again, at the end, I can't really speak to um, you know uh, wh what was happening. I know that during the time that I was editor and worked with folks like John Page and Ken Weaver and Daniel Hardis, who succeeded me as editor, uh, we actually saw print subscriptions rise, uh, which was great. Um, and I think that if you know ownership. Um, you know, installs uh, the right people uh, in the advertising and the sales roles uh, here in the U.S., uh, you can definitely um, make a good living. Uh, you can definitely have uh, good revenue coming in. Um, you know, and, and media companies are diversifying as well. You know, we had launched a podcast. Um, you know, there, there's video options. There, there's all sorts of ways that media companies can, can make money and uh, get in front of advertisers. And, uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, brewers as advertisers. I think that's, um, uh, you know, that, that's one revenue area, you know, but a, a great frustration when I was there uh, was certainly that we didn't have folks outside of beer 
advertising in the magazine, you know, and in the same way that I yeah. was, you know, at the, at the top of the show when we were talking about how, you know, if we're drinking a Roush beer, we don't talk about smoke for 45 minutes. We talk about other things. Um, you know, people who drink beer and read beer magazines uh, also buy cars and buy grills and uh, bicycles and want to travel. And so, you know, I, I think that, you know, any beer media company out there these days uh, needs to be looking beyond you know, just hoping that Sierra Nevada or, you know, whoever uh, takes out a back cover ad uh, that yeah. brings in a couple of bucks. So, um, like I say, if you have the right ownership, um, you know, and the people uh, in the right roles, uh, I think niche publications can survive. And I'm, you know, really thankful the magazine that I'm at today, Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine here in the U.S., uh, you know, we're doing well. You know, subscriptions are up. Uh, ad pages are up. Um, you know, there's, uh, and diversified ads as well. So, you know, the folks who are, who are running the company and who are in charge of that, um, you know, are doing what they're supposed to. And so, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, fortunate to, to be where I'm at, but, um, that doesn't make the, uh, the, the death of all about beer, uh, any easier. And so, uh, um, you know, it was a real pleasure working with everybody on the editorial staff when I was there and all of the writers as well. But, uh, all good things, as they say, must come to an end. Mm. But speaking of which, you've, you've, having said that you may need to, to, to race off, you've uh, messaged me offline saying uh, that you can stay on for a little bit, which is great. Uh, <laughs> I just didn't want – our listeners are used to me going on um, to the point that we have a, uh, a an industry listener um, – uh, who said that you guys just get longer and longer and longer, and so we've imposed the cook limit. But this is such a great chat; we're, we're not going to impose the cook <laughs> limit, saying nobody has to race off. Yeah, it's uh, and I, you know, the the other podcast that I host, uh, Steal This Beer, uh, here in the U.S. Uh, my co-host goes on and on and on as well. So it's uh, I, I appreciate you guys giving me a chance to actually answer questions because it's you know it's an odd <laughs> sensation to be on a podcast where I can I can actually expound on things. I, I think Pete feels your pain. I hear you, brother. <laughs> I, I think I just got an amen. We've got a support group going. Yeah. Uh, steal this, steal this beer. What's the uh, conceit of that one? Yeah, we've been doing it for the last three and a half years now. So it's myself and Augie Carton, who uh, runs a brewery here in New Jersey called Carton Brewing. And um, the the whole premise of the show is the guest comes on. Um, you know, we have a candid conversation about beer and the thought behind beer, and you know what what folks are up to, but. The guest uh, brings on two beers, and we don't know what the beers are. Uh, and they're served to us in black glasses. And so uh, all we can really go by is on aroma and taste. Um, and it's really kind of fun because, you know, you, you can, without even the visual cues, you don't know what you're dealing with. And there's been times that we've had loggers on the show that we would swear are milk stouts. Um, you know, because if, if all, all you're picking up is like, you know, a first aroma, uh, first impression or, uh, you know, a certain kind of mouthfeel, uh, it can change the notion of beer. And so it's not so much what we want a beer to be, uh, but how a beer is presented to us. And it, it's, it's caused some pretty lively conversations over the years. So, um, you know, when people are done listening to, to your show, if they want to dial us up, uh, uh, please do. But, um, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fun conversation about beer. I'm sure we'll um, put a, a plug for it in the uh, in the show notes. Thank you. Yeah. you. You mentioned before when we were talking about all about beer that uh, the, the current owner described himself as a serial entrepreneur. Uh, it, it, it's something that Pete and I have made uh, a few jokes of recently um, that you see an increasing number of entrepreneurs coming into the beer space that don't necessarily uh, know the industry, um, they don't know the product, but they convince themselves that they know business and that their skills are immediately translatable to that. Um, you know, is, is that a fair assessment if, if you see yourself as a businessman that you can just be a beer entrepreneur, do you think? Uh, gosh, I, you know, I, I think it, it really just, it has to depend on the individual person. You know, it has to depend on work ethic. Um, and it also really has to, uh, you know, depend on authenticity. You know, there are some really smart business people uh, and business minded people in beer um, who, you know, know traditional business, um, but then who also understand a beer audience and they also understand, you know, what people want um, and how to give it to them. Um, and so, you know, I, I think you need to have a complete skill set uh, for something like beer uh, and not just say, you know, well, I was successful working, uh, you know, in a, in a tech firm or I was successful doing this or successful doing that. 
uh, you know, or running a bar, or, you know, running something else. Uh, so now I'm going to get into this um, because there, there, there's so many, there's so much nuance, you know, to it. Um, you know, and it, it comes down to, you know, acts of humility as well, you know, as we were talking about earlier. So, um, I, I don't know if there's one fits all answer to your question. Um, but I think the the folks who have business background or who are business minded, but who also get the nature of beer and the possibility of beer, uh, and the way that, uh, beer, you know, makes us feel, and I, and I don't necessarily just mean after a couple of rounds, but, you know, the, the excitement that we can get from visiting a brewery or, you know, seeing a cool label or, or whatever, those are the ones who are successful in this industry. And, you know, I think of people like, you know, like Jim Cook, for example, or uh, Dan Canary, who is uh, one of the co-founders of Harpoon uh, up in Boston, you know, or Rush Klitsch out in uh, uh, Lakefront in, in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, you know, these are guys who, you know, sort of get the, you know, the full package. I had very fond memories of um, a harpoon. We spent a, a week in in Boston, and um, and harpoon was yeah, one of our favourites. It was just terrific. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's 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 a great brewery, and uh, and and again, it comes from the top down. You know, it, if if the people who work at the top are smart, are hardworking, are dedicated, um, you know, the people that they surround themselves were, with are are going to have those same passions and those same skill sets, and uh, it's going to translate into a to a good beer experience. Yeah, and I think you've hit the nail on the head because the I think the the breweries that I love and and tend to sort of gravitate towards are the ones where they you, you just get that feeling that they get it. So it's um and I'll use um again oh threes brewing in um in Brooklyn as well was 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 one of our very pleasant surprises and it was right from the start just the the welcome. Um, you know, somebody who was walking through with, uh, you know, delivering food or whatever they were doing, but still, you know, managed to give us a genuine, you know, hello and welcome kind of, and, and that just set the scene. The people, I, I guess, are the ones that, are, you know, that's the, the, the greatest resource. Yeah, they, it, it really is. You know, it's, uh, um, and the breweries that invest in their people, uh, you know, the owners that invest in their people see a great return. You know, it's, it's, it's why, you know, there, there are people who, uh, start working at a brewery and will get uh, the logo tattooed on their arm, uh, you know, because they 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 have they have that passion and they feel like they're valued and they feel like they're part of, uh, you know, something greater than just themselves. And then that translates to us, the drinkers. You know, there there's there's something about you know I, I mentioned Sierra Nevada early on. Um, I've been fortunate to to meet Ken Grossman, the co-founder of that brewery, uh, multiple times, and uh, sit down and interview him, and uh, you know meet a lot of the employees who are there, who are always just seemingly so very happy to be part of it. Um, and I know that when I put my dollars forward uh, to buy their beer, which I do regularly as a consumer, not as a guy who writes about beer, but as somebody who just you know sometimes I just want to drink beer at home with my wife. Um, you know, I, I feel good about passing my money over because I know who it's going to and I know what they stand for. Um, and, you know, that's one of the cool things about beer as well is that we can, you know, forge these connections in a way that we can't necessarily with, you know, our car manufacturer or, you know, Apple who makes our iPhones or, you know, any number of other things, you know, that that, that we interact with on a daily basis. You know, beer is, is personal in a way that so many of these other intimate products that we have in our life uh, is not. Is that the way going forward? The, the I guess brewery success really comes down to, uh, at the end of the day, I guess, uh, you know, if I want a better word, a figurehead. Um, you, you mentioned Ken Grossman. You mentioned, you know, Sam Calagione, um, Jim Cook and Greg Cook. Uh, I guess the the very successful breweries, uh, despite the fact that these guys probably haven't been on the tools for many a, a long year, um, but we still very much associate a, you know a good feeling with that person being the the face behind or in front of the brand. Yeah, I you know I I, I think that that is I think it's important, um, and I think that the the guys who led the way, uh, the industry leaders who who sort of sh uh, led by that example. Um, uh, you know, the newer generation that steps up and, and, and has noticed that and tries to emulate that, uh, that they can be successful going forward. John, it, it's, it's been a wonderful uh, chat with you as it was uh, before. We, we're going to have to make a uh, maybe a, a point of catching up with you on a more regular basis, almost a, a, a postcard from the States just to see how things are going over there, because inevitably a lot of those trends do filter down here. 
Well, I'm I'm happy to do it. Check with your listeners first, just to make sure that that's something that they want. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm happy to talk with you guys anytime. And uh, you know, the offer stands that next time you're in the states, uh, to please come on, steal this beer, and uh, you know, we'll we'll have proper pints, and uh, I will strive to quote you accurately. <laughs> <laughs> As we mentioned, uh, your book, Drink Beer, Think Beer, um, is available. Uh, you can get it. It is available in Australia, and it's certainly available on Kindle. Um, uh, so you can get it as soon as you're listening to the podcast and also uh, steal this beer, um, your podcast. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, there'll, there'll be links uh, to all to both of those in the show notes. Wonderful. Great to chat, John, and uh, all the very best. And hopefully we'll talk to you uh, with beers in hand very soon. Guys, it was a real pleasure. Thanks so much for making the time for me. Thanks again, John. Cheers. And that was John Hall. As you heard in the chat, we spoke with John way back in 2014 in what was another fascinating discussion. I really don't know why we waited so long to have him back. But in preparing for today's show, I went back and listened to that episode, and it was interesting to revisit a time when the US only had 3,000 breweries, and that seemed a lot, and see how much has changed since. So we have dug out that chat, edited out the old news, and we'll post it as our first Radio Brews News Revisited. You'll find it in your podcast feed. 